Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Youth Suffrage Association podcast. I'm Finn Ryan, one of your hosts, and in today's episode, we will be exploring the world of habitual voting. Now, as many of you may know, the term habitual is grounded in another term, habit, or a settled or regular tendency or practice, especially one that is difficult to give up. And this definition comes from Oxford Dictionary. Now, habits surround us on a daily basis. We may have habits of waking up at a certain time, or picking certain clothes to wear, or even a certain breakfast cereal. And don't get me wrong, habits aren't just applicable to morning activities. They actually follow us throughout our entire lives. And the same concept holds true for voting. In fact, Ilyas Denaz's research in his article, The Formation of Voting Habits, is perhaps most indicative of this type of habitual voting. The study that he conducted followed individuals for upwards of 30 years, recording their voting patterns and profiling their experiences. Tenazes found that voting in one election, and I quote, increases the likelihood of voting in subsequent elections by 25%. That's right, you are 25% more likely to vote again if you voted in the past. So it's pretty evident that voting in the past does have an impact on your tendency to re-vote or vote again. And this is compounded by other research in a myriad of fields. Political science research, for example, has proven that citizens often cast votes in the presence of motivation. And motivation is another one of these key terms that you're going to hear a lot in a lot of articles or podcasts explaining this topic. I'm sure many of you are familiar with what motivation is, but essentially it's what drives you to do something. And in regard to voting, motivation can be many different things, or it can come from many different things, that is. Um, One primary example is concern for the election results. Say you are really, really passionate about a certain candidate and you are doing everything in your power to ensure that they win. That um, zeal to um, have them win is a great source of motivation and will um, ultimately drive you to the ballots. Um, Another form of motivation in reference to voting is adherence to party standards or just respect. You may be motivated to vote just because you want to make sure that your party is either um, in the forefront of politics, whether that be locally or nationally, um, or you just have a deep respect for certain candidates who are on your party side. That's why um, teams, though um, often dividing and polarizing, can be a great source of motivation. You may have heard the term like competition is motivation because at the end of the day, it is. So this kind of competition that does um, follow politics and is almost synonymous with politics today um, is a great driving force for voting. Um, Now, once you have voted, um, there are many things that are kind of launched into action or set into action. And one of these things, as I explained before, is an increased frequency for re-voting. By voting, or for voting, to become a habit, there really must be specific cues that remind and drive people to the polls. 
The time of election or the poll location are both great examples of these voting cues that make the process habitual. And as you probably can gather, at the heart of habitual voting is repetition. And this was certainly made clear in one study conducted by John H. Aldrich, Jacob and Montgomery, and Wendy Wood. The three sought to analyze the following information. Did an individual vote in a particular election? This type of inquiry tallied um, what was referred to as a validated vote, if you are interested. And the other question that they asked was, how did individuals feel towards a select election, the associated candidates, and did they express such feelings? And finally, they looked for the question of, was the frequency at which the individuals voted in the past, and how did that affect their voting today? And what they found was that contrary to what many people thought, it was actually not genuine care that drove people to the polls. So this is contradictory to that kind of motivation that we thought that I addressed in the beginning. It really isn't that type of motivation, um, whether that be adherence to party standards or just um, you are kind of concerned for election results. It's not necessarily that kind of motivation, but sheer repetition. Um, they found that, um, particularly for those who vote consistently, voting had become something of a second nature or habit. These people did not really think twice about voting. Um, and this applied to not just local votes where it was easier to vote, but national votes. Um, and it's really interesting to think about because when you analyze it, voting is a very taxing experience. I mean, besides having um, a say and being represented in your um, community or country, voting um, really takes more than it gives. I mean, you have to probably wake up early, it disrupts your routine, you have to fill out all of the necessary registration information. It's pretty taxing. So it makes sense that it isn't just kind of plain old motivation that drives people to the ballot, but just that they have always done that and they will continue to do so because it has become a habit. So regardless of candidates, beliefs, or which level the election was at, it really did not influence these types of voters. And to let you know, these types of voters are most voters. Um, a lot of people, unless they are part of a kind of, or they're like new to a location, um, or they're um, just getting in the flow of things, they are these type of habitual voters. And um, though what I addressed before about what I just said, like those people who are just getting in the flow of things or are new to a new location, that's another factor that is super important to habitual voting. Um, these factors are called disrupting factors. So, for example, um, if you move, that's a disrupting factor because you are forced to readjust. Um, you may have to re-register. Um, you may have to find a new location for your polls. Maybe even carry new standards and regulations like a driver's license, which was not the same for your past experience with voting. So, moving interrupts this kind of automatic repetition and habit that may surround voting. So what tends to happen is 
um, for those who are moving or experiencing other disrupting factors, they are less likely to go out to vote because not only do they, um, well, let me rephrase that actually. Um, these people are less likely to vote because regardless of they, if they care about the election or want to adhere to their party standards, they don't have that habitual tendency that others may have. So that is actually why a lot of um, um, voter suppression tactics involve kind of disrupting a routine. Because when you disrupt um, kind of that repetition that surrounds habitual voting, as I explained, it makes it a lot less likely for people to vote. And one example of this kind of cue or disrupting cue um, was profiled in the article Habit Formation and Voting, Evidence from Rainy Elections, which was conducted, the study was conducted and the article was written by Thomas Fijuari, Kyle Meng, and Tom Vogel, who found that there were differences in voter turnout between two different contexts, rainy weather and sunny weather. With a mere millimeter of rain, voter turnout decreased by 0.5%. So when you take this into mind, it makes sense that they didn't vote because their routine and their day-to-day -day regulations were disrupted. And again, that's why a lot of these voter suppression tactics involve disruption, changes in poll location, new ID regulation, or unanticipated closing do indeed suppress voters because it interrupts their repetition. And this makes voter, voters less likely to come to the polls because they're not used to it. And in turn, that lowers the voter turnout, which can favor a certain candidate or disfavor another one. So it is only when there is this stable context that voters will start to develop a habit. Now, you may be wondering how this applies to lowering the voting age to 16. And it's quite simple, because if we return to the topic of disrupting factors, we will notice that there is an age period that is directly correlated with a disrupting factor. And that age range is 18 to 21. As many of you may know, 18-year-olds, um, it's being 18 is often a period of transition. It's a transitional time. You may be pursuing secondary education, finding jobs or occupations, or as I explained before, moving. And 18 is also the time when you are afforded the right to vote. So when you pair these disrupting period with a newfound vote, what tends to happen is this age range is the least likely to vote. And we can change that by lowering the voting age to 16. 16 year olds are in this stable context that I was talking about before. They often may be accompanied by their parents to the polls. They also have friends that can surround them that are also able to vote, so they may do it together. And this type of pressure of, that comes with a stable context allows 16 and 17 year olds to develop the voting habit early. And as we know, a habit is something that is very hard to break. So it will likely continue on making these individuals lifelong voters. And yes, this may happen in, circumstance, in some circumstances with 18 year olds, but those are merely anecdotal. 
statistics prove that the age range that I was just talking about is the least likely to vote. Um, and that can greatly, greatly impact election results and a tendency to revote. So by lowering the voting age, not only are we developing these voting habits, but we are increasing civic engagement and increasing voter turnout rates, which is so important and are many of the pillars to electoral voting by democracy. So this essentially is why we decided it would be a good idea to devote an entire podcast episode to addressing not only what habitual voting is, but how it relates to lowering the voting age to 16 and why it is one of the primary arguments for lowering the voting age. Now, normally I would conclude the podcast here, but we've actually had a couple questions that have been sent in via audio recordings. So we thought instead of just taking um, another podcast episode to answer those questions, because there are two, I believe, we could just kind of tack it on to this episode. So that's what we're going to do in the next segment. All right, we are about to go into our two questions, one from Anna and one from Vivian. But before we do so, we just want to let you know that if you yourself has any questions, feel free to contact us on our website. We have all of our contact information. And also, we encourage you to listen to this next segment because they may ask your questions. All right, let's get into it. Hi, my name is Anna, and my question is, is if there's a major difference between the development of the brains of a 16-year-old and someone who is 18 and older. Hi, Anna. Thank you so much for your question. And the short answer is no, but the long answer does involve some statistical data that can back up that answer. Obviously, we aren't going to go into too much depth. So if you have any further questions, make sure to reach out and we will be sure to provide you with further resources. Now, when addressing this kind of topic, one term often comes up, cold cognition. Cold cognition is a mental process or activity that does not involve feelings or emotions. For instance, reading a list of nonsense syllables or factoids typically involves cold cognition. And this definition comes from the APA Dictionary of Psychology. In terms of 16 and 17 year olds, they are in fact capable of maintaining and expressing cold cognition. They can analyze options, scrutinize candidates, and perform appropriate decision-making tendencies, all without involving feelings or intense emotions. This does hold true for 18-year-olds, but because your question was if there is any different or difference, um, there really isn't in terms of cold cognition, which is vital to voting. Now, this is contrary to the term hot cognition, which is grounded in impulsivity and poor decision making in the face of pressure. Many adults may characterize 16 and 17 year olds as strong hot cognition thinkers, but scientific analysis would suggest otherwise. This type of analysis and study, um, or one example of this type of analysis and study comes from a study in 2012 in Austria, where 16 and 17 year olds have had the vote since 2007. This study found that voters in this age group were just as likely to be able to describe their ideological learnings and to select candidates that reflected those inclinations as older voters. 
So there really isn't that much of a difference between 18-year-olds and 16-year-olds when it comes to voting. However, there is one difference that does separate the two. And that is, as we talked about in the beginning of this podcast, disrupting factors. 18-year-olds are often in a period of transition. They may be moving, um, going on to more education, or pursuing a job. And with this new transition, they are less likely to go out and vote. So while there isn't a difference on the 16-year-old side, there certainly is a difference on the 18-year-old side. And that is why lowering the voting age is such a strong and powerful option that will not only increase voter turnout, but civic engagement. Thank you again. What if the kids don't take voting seriously since they're so young? Hi, Vivian. Thank you so much for reaching out and thank you for your question. Now, our answer is going to be a little similar to Anna's, but we will be providing a little more information that pertains to your question. Now, first, it's important to realize that voter turnout or the lack of voter turnout is applicable to all age groups. So when talking about 16 and 17 year olds in regard to them not showing up, we need to understand that that's not to say that other age groups, everyone is coming out to vote. It's also not to say that of the registered voters, they're all coming. What tends to happen is not a lot of even the registered voters actually come to the polls. But when you afford the right to vote to 16 and 17 year olds, they actually have higher rates of coming out as registered voters. For example, in Tacoma Park in 2013, 44% of the registered voters of 16 and 17 year olds came out compared to less than 10% of the registered voters for all other age groups combined. So it's really important to know that 16 and 17 year olds have a voice, but they just don't have a vote to back it up. So yes, there may be some immaturity that follows them, but there's immaturity that follows all age groups. It's merely anecdotal to characterize um, this age group as immature. Um, And that's one of the things that many people bring up. So we're really happy that you brought this point up. But yes, it's going to happen um, as it does for all age groups, but chances are it's actually going to help us when we, um, or help our turnout rate when we lower the voting age. So thank you so, so much again for your question. And again, if you have, or for anyone else, if you have any questions, make sure to let us know and we will be more than happy to answer them. All right, have a nice day. Thank you everyone for all of your questions and thank you for listening to this episode. Stay tuned for next week. Bye.